This is a Sunday talk by Joel titled, Finding a True Teacher, recorded on February 8, 2004, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. This was a question left in the question box, and the person did ask to remain anonymous, so I will honor that. I hope I won't slip give you a clue inadvertently. (laughs) So here's the question. I recently came across something that Ken Wilber wrote that seemed to throw some light on an issue over which I had pondered for some time. And that is, how can it be that someone can be enlightened and yet still behave like a jerk? I have a personal curiosity about this issue because of having been a student of two teachers, both of whom exhibited problematic sexual behavior, but both of whom seem to have had a beneficial influence on their students in other ways. In the following quote, Wilbur says this about his former teacher, Adi Da. For those of you who don't know, <coughs> excuse me, Adi Da sometimes uh, used to be called Da Free John, so it's the same person. So this is what Wilbur says about the Adida. Some types of spiritual development can run way ahead of moral, social, interpersonal, and wisdom development in general. I stated my opinion that Da was one of the greatest spiritual realizers of all time. Yet I called attention to the fact that even though Da might be highly spiritually realized, he seemed to have several problematic perhaps even pathological aspects to his personality and the way he was running his community. Then this is the questioner. Do you think Wilbur's statement accurately describes why it is that many so-called enlightened teachers are involved in so many scandals? And if you do think that this is an accurate statement, do you think your spiritual development has run ahead of other parts of your personality? (laughs) And if so, which? But wait a minute, then she says, P.S., I'm not implying anything by that last sentence of my question. (laughs) So, the short answer to the question is, no, I don't think that Ken Wilber's statement is a good way of looking at it. I think Ken Wilber's statement itself is problematic. And I will tell you why. Here's what Webster's Dictionary says about pathology. Deviation from an assumed normal state of something. So in order to judge something or a personality problematic or pathological, you have to have some idea of what is normal. You have to have some criteria in order to make this judgment. This is very difficult to do, especially in a multicultural global environment, which, as spiritual seekers, we are very much involved in. It's very interesting. We hear a lot of talk about multiculturalism, globalism, and so forth. And in Eugene, sometimes that can seem very distant. We actually, in Eugene, uh, have a pretty monocultural environment. But as spiritual seekers, probably in that area, more than almost any others in our modern world, we have this tremendous crossover 
We have teachers coming from other cultures here. We have students going to other countries and studying with teachers there, back and forth. We have texts circulating from all these different traditions. So we really are involved in a multicultural environment when we become spiritual seekers. And it's something very important to keep in mind. It's very important for us in terms of how we judge things, but it's also important for the future. Because how we all respond to each other is how we will develop, hopefully, some sort of unity as we move into the future instead of conflict. So we have two aspects to this. One is very personal, but the other is a social responsibility we have to be careful. So I'm going to give you one example of why this can be problematic. And this is a true story that I read, oh, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago uh, in the newspapers. And it was about a woman in England who had taken a razor and slashed her daughter's cheeks. And she was put on trial. And what's interesting about this story, and why isn't simply a case of horrible child abuse, pathological abuse, is that she was from Africa. And in her culture, her tribe, uh, when a child gets to be a certain age, they have to have markings. And if they don't, have those markings, they are forever ostracized from their society. They can never marry, they can never have a family, they can never lead a normal life. So the defense's argument was if she had not slashed her child's face, that would have been abusive. So here's an interesting situation where we first hear something and it sounds horrible and then we have a context whether you approve of slashing faces or not. The context, though, does shift what's going on a lot. And when we look at spiritual teachings, teachers, and situations, we find often these sorts of, to us, shocking kinds of behavior. For instance, there's a story in this book I mentioned earlier, Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, about a Zen master called Gute, probably butchering his name, and his method of teaching was whenever someone asked him a question about the Dharma or about Buddhahood or whatever, he would hold up a finger. And he had a boy who was his attendant. And the boy started mimicking him. And people would say, what did the master talk about today? And the boy would... And then, you know, maybe he'd even go behind his back, you know, how we do in our culture. This <laughs> so one day the master caught him at it and grabbed his hand and took his knife and sliced off his finger. And the boy was howling in pain and started to run away. And the master called him, and the boy turned around and the master held up his finger. And the boy was instantly enlightened. Now, if a master in this country, a teacher, sliced off the finger of a child, he'd be in court in a second. But that's told in this book as an exemplary teaching. Uh... The Symposium. The Symposium was a dialogue that Plato wrote, and it's written in the form of a dinner party, actually, where all these guys back in ancient Greece got together, and they didn't have TV and stuff there, so the way they entertained themselves is they'd think up some philosophical topic, and then they'd all give their opinions, uh, trying to define it or say something about it. So in this particular night, they choose love. When each one gives their opinion, and then Plato's spokesperson... Socrates gives his view, and it's about how love leads us from love of beautiful things to love of virtue to finally love of beauty itself and the ultimate. 
But there's one interesting thing about this dialogue. The prime example they use for love of beautiful things, material things, is homosexual love between a man and a boy, which was perfectly common in that culture. And all these guys had these relationships, and they talk about it as perfectly normal, and they go back and forth and they talk about this. So this is the example. It's very problematic for our culture. And I remember when I was a teenager in high school, uh, we read the symposium, and our teachers went out of their way to explain you know, that this was from ancient Greece and they're not promoting homosexuality and whatnot and, you know, so forth and so on. Of course, as teenagers, we read it, we howled and, you know, did all the things teenagers do. But here again is a fabulous teaching and it's making use of things that we would consider pathological. Um, Jennifer, when she was down in the Bay Area not too many years ago, met a Sufi sheikh who had two wives. Now, in Islam, you can have up to four wives. That's not considered anything wrong with that. It's a little strange in our culture. This Hindu teacher that I mentioned earlier, Ananda Mahima, she had a quite strange life by our standards. One is she had what she called her kyle, a voice in her head that would give her instruction. Her kyle would suggest she should do certain spiritual practices, so she'd do them and so forth. And then uh, somewhere about halfway through her life, now she was a spiritual teacher and she had all these disciples, she stopped eating. And her disciples had to literally feed her. Now, in our culture, this would be considered a very problematic kind of behavior. It would be very strange. I mean, they'd want to send her to a psychologist and figure out why she's listening to voices in her head and why she isn't eating and so forth. But in that culture, it was considered a sign of her advanced spiritual realization. So here's some examples of why we run into problems when we start talking about someone's pathological personality. Not, as you're going to see later, we can't make any judgments, but we have to be very careful and know where we are coming from. Wilbur's use of the word pathology in this context indicates where he's coming from and how he's using it. And he's coming from a modern paradigm or worldview about psychological development, which probably a lot of you are familiar with. But we have to recognize that this is a worldview or a psychological paradigm that is restricted to a very small clique of Western-educated liberals. Most people in this world would have no idea what he's talking about and would not agree with it. So, whether it's right or wrong, I'm not making a judgment. But it is coming from a very, very restricted point of view. And this paradigm itself or I should not say even one paradigm. These psychological paradigms, these theories themselves, are very fluid and disagree among themselves. When you talk about modern psychology, there are different schools of psychology and there are different attitudes of what is pathological. When I was growing up, for instance, homosexuality was considered a disease. It was listed in this, this, I don't know, some association of psychiatrists and you look up all the mental diseases people have. DSM. What? The DSM. That's what it's called? Yeah, Diagnostic and Statistical. That's what I'm talking about, right. Now, today it's not. It's off the list. So here in, you know, less than 50 years, it's changed. And what's it going to be 50 years from now? So these are not like, quote, scientific facts written in stone someplace. But there's an even deeper problem with Ken Wilber's theories. And this comes from another thing he says 
Individuals can be at a relatively high level in their spiritual development, but at a relatively low level in other lines of their development, and this mixture can be very problematic. Now, this implies that realization or enlightenment or gnosis is the end result of a developmental process on a par with psychological development or social development, all sorts of other developments. So it's some sort of stage of full maturity, we might say. This is categorically wrong. That is not what realization is about. In any mystical tradition, realization is about one thing, one thing only. It's realizing that there is no person, you, self, individual, separate entity there to begin with that could develop or not develop or anything like that. It don't exist. And what you really are, your true identity, is the ultimate. And different traditions have different names for that. Brahman, God, Allah, Buddha nature, the great Tao. We like to say consciousness itself here. It's more a baggage-free term. I'm going to just read you some quotes. Some of you have heard this before, but it's worth hearing again. This is very radical, and it's very important we understand this. Whether we believe these mystics or not, maybe they are all bananas, but we do want to know what they are saying, and we don't want to impose our ideas on what they are saying. Here's Zen Master Huang Po. Only come to know the nature of your own mind, in which there is no self and no other, and you will in fact be a Buddha. Here's the Hindu, Lali Shwari. She says, When the mirror of my mind became clear, I saw that God is not other than me. And this non-dual knowledge completely destroyed all thought of you and I. Hindu, Buddhist. Here's the Christian mystic, Meister Eckhart. In this breaking through, I receive that God and I are one. Then I am what I was, and then I neither diminish nor increase, for I am an immovable cause that moves all things. He's not a person who develops into some sort of mature individual. Here's the great Sufi poet Rumi. He writes of God. When the heart was annihilated within him, He remained, then it understood the object of his words, I myself am the seeker and the sought. So if you're seeking God, what's really going on is God seeking God. There is no you in there seeking God. So this is a radical, radical teaching. It's not another psychological teaching. Spirituality is not a psychology. It's not equivalent to a psychology. I happen to believe that modern psychology has come up with insights that can be valuable on a spiritual path in terms of uncovering obstacles and so forth. But we are not on a spiritual path in order to develop into mature human beings. We are on a spiritual path in order to see the nature of reality, at least if you are following a mystical path. So this enlightenment is beyond any concepts, beyond any developmental theories, beyond any of that. Now, I want to make one little digression here. 
I believe someday we will have a spiritual psychology, which will draw on insights from modern psychology, but it will not explain enlightenment. It will explain the mechanism of delusion by which we come to believe we are not enlightened, if you want to put it that way. And that will be very helpful to us, because when we see how that delusion works, we can start to dismantle it. But in the meantime, to say that enlightenment or realization shows you that there is no person does not mean that it wipes out personality. If we mean by personality a conditioned pattern of behavior, what it does destroy is self-centered conditioning. That is conditioning that revolves around this false imagination that there is some self. But it does not destroy or wipe out biological conditioning, social conditioning, cultural conditioning, things like that. So I have type AB blood. That's conditioned by genetics, we'd say in modern terms. I speak English. That's a cultural conditioning. I grew up in America and I learned English. Gute was probably actually a Chinese teacher. He spoke Chinese. That's because he was conditioned to do that. Uh, I have certain mannerisms. I grew up in New York, an Italian neighborhood of lots of Jews. And I, you know, throw my arms around and I talk loudly and I'm sometimes in people's face. And a lot of people find that problematic actually out here, you know. (laughs) What's wrong with him? Well, in New York, nothing's wrong with me. When you come to New York, something's wrong with you. (laughs) So these are all conditioned things. Ramana Maharshi, who was a great Hindu mystic of the last century, had a very nice way of describing this. He's talking about the ego after enlightenment. And he says the ego is like a rope that you put on a charcoal fire when there's no wind. And the rope burns through to ash. But it maintains its form. If you look at it, it has a perfect form of a rope, but it does not have any power to bind anymore. It's lost its power to bind. So this is very important. Sometimes people go around looking for a spiritual teacher, and any teacher that has any sort of personality, they say, well, I can't be enlightened. In fact, Ramana Maharshi himself had uh, a strange personality by a lot of people's standards, but he liked to read the newspaper every morning. He loved playing with the monkeys. There's stories about him in this ashram. The monkeys would come in and his attendants would try to chase them out. They would, I don't know, snatch him food or something. And, and they'd chase them one way and the attendants would leave and he'd call the monkeys back and say, come this way, come this way. <laughs> they'd come back and stuff like that. He got angry. So these patterns of behavior are going to unfold. That's what's going on here. There's a whole divine display of patterns of all sorts of behavior. So let's not be confused about that. The thing is, when we talk about behavior being problematic or pathological, we have to just acknowledge it's from the observer's point of view. So then we have to ask the question, is there any way to judge an enlightened teacher's behavior, or any teacher's behavior for that matter? I mean, it's important that we have some ways of judging behavior. So I thought we'd step back now and take a look at how you might find a true spiritual teacher. What sorts of criteria could we use? So I'm broadening out the scope of the question a little bit, and I'm also, by the way, giving you my view as opposed to Ken Wilber's view. So this part of what I'm telling you here are establishing relative criteria, so don't take what I say as any more written in stone. But I think this is more useful. It's broader, more general, and isn't as 
culturally specific as Wilbur's, I think, quite narrow view of things. So, first of all, there's no way to tell, looking outward, if a, quote, person, unquote, is enlightened or not. We have to recognize that. Everyone is their own authority. And there's a wonderful Zen story that illustrates this. There was a Zen student who had been meditating and working on a koan or something, and boom, his mind opened up. He had Satori, he was enlightened, and he ran to his master and he told him what happened, and the master questioned him a little bit, and then the master said, that's not Satori, you go back and work on your koan. And the student was a little dumbfounded by that, but he respected his master, so he went back, and a few days later he came back to the master and said, you know what, you keep your Satori, I'll keep this. And the master said, that's it. See, the master been testing him. Could he shake him? Could he raise doubt in his mind? But he couldn't. Everybody has their own authority. So, we are talking about a relative criteria that we can look at. And I think it's valuable to say that any teacher you meet will fall into probably one of five kinds of categories. You might not know right off the bat when you meet them, but eventually this is what you want to decide about them. There are three categories of what I would call true teachers. By that I mean there's no deception going on. Uh, One is a fully enlightened teacher. But you can also have a teacher who has had Gnostic flashes. And by that I mean someone who has glimpsed the reality. And then for one reason or another, it's like the clouds parted and now the clouds close back over. And you could have a teacher who is a very advanced practitioner who's just had a lot of experience in meditation and working with precepts and all that. And because they've had more experience than you, they can give you all kinds of advice and clues about your practice. All these classes of teachers can be very beneficial. But it is important to know the difference. At least a teacher who's fully enlightened or has had a Gnostic flash, for them, it's no longer a mystery of what this is all about because they've seen directly. And that's very helpful to lead someone else because you can tell... Uh, when someone's going around in a circle, for instance, or chasing things that are short of that, like uh, supernatural powers. That's something all genuine teachers say. Don't waste your time with that. So it's very important, but just even an advanced practitioner can be a great help to you. But these people, in general, know where they stand. So an advanced practitioner will say, you know, my teacher used to say this, and so they'll just speak at the level of what they know. Then there's two other categories of teacher that are, quote, problematic. One are out-and-out charlatans. (laughs) They know that they aren't enlightened or anything like that. Maybe they don't even believe all this stuff. But they know a good thing when they see it. Uh, You can ask for money, you can ask for sex, you can surround yourself with disciples and stuff like that. And if they're a good actor, and if they're smart and clever, they can study the text, you know, they can parrot back the words. They can do a very good job of deceiving people. And this isn't a big surprise. That's what good actors and actresses do. Ben Kingsley played Gandhi beautifully. Did anybody see the movie Gandhi? Wow, what an acting job. I don't know what Ben Kingsley's life is, you know, off the screen. I don't think he's like Gandhi, and I'm not <laughs> slandering him at all. But, you know, they can maintain for at least quite a while this aura of being an enlightened teacher. Even more dangerous are teachers who confuse the ego with God. I would call them fully deluded teachers, not fully enlightened. (laughs) Because the ultimate end of delusion is to think, this separate self, this is God. 
And they might even generally think that they're enlightened in a very perverse way. And likewise, if they've done a lot of spiritual practice and all that, they can talk a good talk. So people get fooled by them, and then that becomes a big problem. But even so, now we have these categories. When you approach a teacher, how do you decide what category to put them in? And again, there is a problem in a multicultural global environment because different traditions have different standards of how enlightened or advanced practitioners should live. For instance, in the Hindu and Buddhist traditions, at least a lot of the Hindu and Buddhist traditions, celibacy and being a renunciate is highly valued. In fact, you will find some schools of Buddhism will not tell you what, you just can't get enlightened unless you're going to be celibate. In Islam and Judaism, it's frowned on if not forbidden. Even a totally enlightened being is supposed to be married and have children and participate in the community. In Islam, lifelong monasticism is forbidden. So these are very different kinds of standards. Uh, Dietary habits. In Islam, you can't drink. In Christianity, it's fine to drink, even if you're a monastic. In these monasteries, they make wine, and they drink it. I read some of the monastic rules. You know, say, don't drink more than three glasses of wine with your dinner. (laughs) (laughs) In Buddhism, in some Buddhist traditions, if you are a nun or a monk, you can't drink at all. And if you're a lay person, you can drink, but not to the point of intoxication. So these rules or these standards, the cultural standards, vary. So we just have to be careful about these things. Uh, Different traditions emphasize different kinds of teachings. So some traditions emphasize a very janana practice, practices of inquiry, investigation, using an analytic approach. On the opposite end of the scale, some traditions emphasize bhakti, complete surrender to the divine. And a lot of their devotional practices involve music and singing and so forth. And they can look very different. And sometimes this can lead to misunderstandings. And I once heard a Sufi sheikh at a meeting. Uh, he was there, there was a Zen master there, there was a Tibetan there, a Native American, and so forth. And this was after three days of you know, communal teachings like that. His comment was about Zen, and he wasn't being critical of Zen, he was just expressing his view. He said, you know, I said, I don't understand it, it's so cold. Because his school of Sufism was very devotional, used a lot of music and opening of the heart and all that. And in Zen, you know, in a lot of Zen schools, they say Zen is not about excitement. That's not what Zen's about. So looking at it from the outside, these seem to be quite different. But both are valid. Some students confuse charisma and chutzpah with spiritual realization. It's very important not to do this. Some spiritual teachers are very charismatic and have a lot of chutzpah. But chutzpah and charisma themselves are no sign of spiritual realization. I like to say the most charismatic figure of the 20th century was Adolf Hitler. And if anybody can be called pathological, he would fit the bill. So charisma is not a a sign. But a lot of teachers break all the traditional social restraints, and they wow students who would secretly like to do that, and they think this is freedom. And so that's another way we get confused. So, if you cannot find any objective criteria 
to categorize a teacher in one of these categories, there is one thing you can do infallibly. First of all, you know what behavior is illegal in your community and society. And that makes a big difference. If you go to Japan and the Zen master cuts off a Japanese student's finger and you go call the police, the police might say, oh, where this happened, happened in a Japanese monastery, why are you calling us? They do that all the time. <laughs> I, don't, I, mean, I don't think they would. But. but if I grab somebody and cut off their finger, I want you to go call the police. No, I mean that. Go call the police. Say, the guy went bananas here. He's cutting off people's fingers. Lock them up, please. And even more importantly, really, you know what crosses your boundaries. And you don't have to decide whether someone's enlightened or not to know that. And I'll give you an example. In our library, we generally have a very liberal attitude towards spiritual teachers and masters and so forth. If they claim to be enlightened, if they have students, we give them the benefit of the doubt. Very often we hear rumors about this teacher, that circulating some scandal. We don't go and investigate and whatnot. But occasionally it becomes so overwhelming that we do make a decision. And there's one particular example of this. Uh, there was a very famous Tibetan Lama, Chogyam Trungpa, the end of the 20th century. And he died, and then his Dharma heir was a Westerner whose name was Osul Tenzin. And then Osul Tenzin was accused of having sex with his students, unprotected sex, knowing that he had AIDS and passing it on to his students. And he didn't deny it. What he said, well, people don't understand how karma works or something like that. I went to Jennifer, she's the head librarian, I said, Jennifer, what do you think about it? Let's get this guy out of the library. He's gone. I don't care if how highly realized he is or not. I really don't. That shouldn't enter into a decision at this point. He's out. <laughs> so we don't have to be tortured like Hamlet trying to make these decisions we trust ourselves we rely on ourselves we rely on our own good judgment our own moral feeling that's good enough that's all God asks you to do there are no ultimate objective criteria so we each play our role to the best of our ability in this big game of life and what you feel is just as important as what the next person feels Trust that. Go with that. Now, in some cases, you might be a little shocked by what a teacher does. They do something unconventional. It's out of the ordinary. That's perfectly legitimate. But the question here is, is is it immoral or illegal? That's what you want to be asking. So, let's then try to look at some positive qualities. Again, these are subjective criteria, but I think if you went through all the traditions, you would find there's some sort of consensus about this, what a fully enlightened spiritual teacher should be like, and then you can judge based on that coming down from that. First of all, motivated by compassion. You read through all these traditions. They talk about the kindness of the guru, by your great compassion, you led me to enlightenment, and so forth like this. This has always been a fundamental quality that you look for. And compassion isn't necessarily a wishy-washy thing. It can actually sometimes look very insensitive, but the motivation is compassion. The motivation is for the person's best spiritual good. And that is not always easy to tell. But let me give you another example. Ramana Maharshi, 
By the way, I keep coming back to Ramana Maharshi, for those of you who don't know who he is, because he is the one teacher that emerged from the 20th century, is now long dead, without a breath of scandal about him, as far as I know. Not a breath. So he comes down to us as a good paradigm for this. He got enlightened very young, and as a teenager, he ran away from home. He left a note for his parents, saying, don't come look for me. Uh, I've run off to be a renunciate and so forth. And then he finally ended up with a ashram, a community of disciples around him by this holy mountain, Aranachala. And meanwhile, his parents, of course, did go look for him. You know, his mother particularly was really upset. I mean, her son ran off. And finally, after years, found him. And so she arrived at the ashram, said, oh, my long-lost son, this and that. And he refused to acknowledge her as his mother. She was just another disciple there. And people thought this was very insensitive, even cruel. And she would beg him, you know, just even for just some glance, for some whisper, say, oh, your mother has arrived. No. But what happened was she realized she could not relate to him this way, and she started to relate to him as a disciple. And according to him, as I understand, if I remember the story correctly, that on her deathbed she became enlightened. So here was an example of what seemed to be insensitive, cruel behavior was really done for a very compassionate reason. How much more happiness uh, he led her to than just recognizing momentarily that she'd found her son. So here's just an example of how unconventional behavior can still be compassionate behavior. Uh, Second thing. Free from attachment to material possessions. Enlightened people do not need material possessions to make them happy. So anybody who seems their happiness depends on having a certain lifestyle or material possessions, that should be an alarm bell that goes off. Now, a teacher who's a householder, especially one with a family, needs to support their family. They need money. They need some form of support. Either they have to work for it or their students have to support them. And because they have a family and the family is all enlightened, they have kids and all that, it should be somewhere in the scale of what is normal for that culture, which could be very different. In this culture, I live this, you know, not too extravagant lifestyle. But of course, you know, compared to sub-Sahara Africa, I'm living like a prince. I mean, just incredible. So... That has to be taken into consideration. But any teacher who's living an extravagant lifestyle, the little alarm bell would go off in the back of my head. Why do they need this extravagant lifestyle? (coughs) So these are things to look for. They're not infallible. Okay. Free from attachment to power. That is an interesting one. Because the drive for power is one of the things that motivates people in this world, even beyond wealth. Really, they want wealth in order to have power. They want to be able to dominate people and so forth. It's very complex psychological reasons for all that. But the fact of the matter is a teacher has power. You give people advice, they go act on it. That is, by definition, power. So that isn't the question. How is the power exercised? In whose interest is the power being exercised is really the question. And sometimes teachers can exercise this power and it can look like it's very domineering. Jesus is a very good example. He would scold his students when they wouldn't do what he said. Here's a quote from him. He says, um, why call me master when you don't even do what I tell you? And all the way through the Gospels, you know, he gets frustrated with them. And he, you know, he tells them a little parable. They misunderstand. He says, you fools. I mean, sometimes he's not treating them very kindly. (laughs) But this is what he says overall, what he's about. 
He says, who is greater, the one who dines or the one who serves? Is it not the one who dines? But see, I'm among you as one who serves. You know, he's a waiter, a wait person. A true spiritual teacher is a wait person, a servant, a waiter, truly speaking. So sometimes they may use that personality, a fiery aspect of it, but truly speaking underneath what is going on here. Is this person here to serve me? So that's something to look for. Hypocrisy. All traditions preach against hypocrisy. You go read the Bible, you read the Quran, you read Buddhas, they all hate hypocrites. So in a certain sense, it doesn't matter what the teacher's doing, are they open about what they're doing? And I'll give you a very good example of how this can work in a culture like ours. Chogyam Trungpa, who I mentioned earlier, who was this Tibetan Lama who came to this country, he was a drunkard, and he was promiscuous. He was a skirt chaser. Now, a lot of people were horrified by all this behavior. But the curious thing about it, he made no attempt to hide this whatsoever. He would give teachings with a glass of gin, a full glass of gin. You know, like some people drink water to clear their... <laughs> so, whatever you think of Trungpa, at least it's all there out in front. I'm not saying he was enlightened here. I'm just saying there's no hypocrisy going on. And then, this is the subtlest. And every time I try to put this into words, I overstate the case in the negative, but I don't know how else to do it. Be suspicious of any teacher who has ambitions to be a teacher. Now, I know a lot of spiritual seekers have ambitions to be a teacher, and there can be a lot of genuine compassion in that, a desire to share and to be helpful and all that. It's also quite dangerous. It's a form of a ambition for fame, really. It can be, let me put it that way. Many of the greatest spiritual teachers were reluctant teachers. And you can go back and read through the traditions. Starting with Moses, one of my favorite stories. Go back and read the first <laughs> chapters of Exodus. Moses goes up to the mountaintop to meet God for the first time. And God says to him, Moses, I'm paraphrasing here. He says, Moses, he says, I'm sending you down there to see Pharaoh, and you're going to lead the people of Israel, and you're going to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses doesn't say, oh, my God, what a privilege. You've chosen me to be the leader of the people of Israel. No. Moses says, you know what? I'm not very eloquent. I can't speak too good. Don't send me. I, I wouldn't be any good at this job. And God says, what? He said, I want you to take that staff and I want you to go down and see Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses says, why don't you take my brother Aaron? He speaks much better than I do. Send him. And then the text says, and the Lord's anger was kindled against Moses. And they argue. And finally, Moses, you know, he's a good negotiator. And so God agrees to send Aaron with him. But he's got to go. He didn't want to be the great prophet of the people of Israel at all. When Buddha first got enlightened, the truth opened up and he's bathed in bliss. And he thought, you know, no one's going to get this. Why should I bother trying to teach this? I mean, it's just going to be vexing. People are going to think I'm crazy, pathological perhaps, you know. The gods had to come to Buddha and beg him to go down from underneath the Bodhi tree to become a teacher. And finally he consented. They aroused his compassion, so he agreed to it. When Muhammad was in the cave 
on Mount Hera, and the angel Gabriel started to give him the Quran. And it all begins, and Gabriel says, recite! He didn't say, oh, is the angel Gabriel speaking to me? Please, what should I recite? He said, no, no, no. Three times! The angel says, recite! He says, no, I can't recite. Finally, after the third time, he did, and the first verses of the Quran were delivered, but he was still very hesitant to assume this role. And he came back and he told his wife what happened. He said, I think I'm going crazy. And she said, no, you've got to listen to this. You're not going crazy. You've got to do this. So he was a reluctant teacher. And there are many stories like this. I'm picking out the biggies. But the last one I'll tell you is St. Augustine, who was not, by his own account, a fully enlightened teacher, but someone who had Gnostic flashes. And he was from North Africa. This is Roman North Africa. And then he was in Rome for a lot of his youth studying and all that. And he's finally fully converted. He wants to live a spiritual life. And he gets a few friends together, and they sail back to North Africa with the intention of establishing a little monastic community. They just do nothing but spiritual practice. And he uh, landed in North Africa, and a friend of his said, there's a congregation here. They lost their priest. And priests had to be educated in those days, and they were quite rare to have a good educated priest. They said, would you come and just give the Sunday sermon for them? He said, fine. So he came to the church. He gave the Sunday sermon. And the congregation locked the door and wouldn't let him out and said, no, you've got to be our priest. <laughs> and the story goes, he wept because this was the end of his dream to go off and live the rest of his life in a monastic community. So watch that. Be suspicious. Now, I must balance all that by saying, in a relative sense, there's a tremendous satisfaction from not the teaching part, but when you see real transformations happening in people's lives, way short of enlightenment or anything. But these teachings really do help to free us from a lot of our suffering. And sometimes people actually do get it. They wake up. So it is gratifying. It's not that it's just a big, awful chore. But I didn't choose to be a teacher. So see if there isn't some underlying ambition. And the way you can tell this often is, are teachers offended when they're challenged by their students? You can arouse a teacher's feelings, but you cannot hurt them. If they're a genuine, enlightened teacher, you cannot hurt them. So you watch what's going on in dialogues, especially where there's a friction between the students and the teacher and how the teacher's responding. So those are some of the positive kinds of things that you can look for. And then you might say, oh, well, I'm watching this person. Gee, you know, they seem to be quite advanced. They probably had Gnostic flashes. And, and then you might either up your evaluation after a while, being with them, say, you know, this person really, wow, they really got it. Or you might say, you know, this person's very good. I'm getting a lot out of it, but I don't think they've really understood it yet. So your evaluations will change. Now, the last part of her question is this business of how is it that sometimes people can benefit from teachers who are clearly, at least in the person's point of view, not enlightened, in fact, maybe even charlatans, and maybe fully deluded. And the thing about true teachers, they're just advanced practitioners, they will have faults. And that's okay. It's just like uh, you could go to the U of O and you could have a fabulous professor of, I don't know, history. really inspires you, makes you interested in history and all that. And you find out that they're cheating on their wives. But it doesn't affect the fact that they're a good history teacher. I can still go and get a lot out of it from taking their class. So an advanced practitioner, that might be the case. But there's no real serious deception going on here. I mean, he might be deceiving his wife, but he's not deceiving you. 
In the case of a charlatan or a fully deluded egomaniacal teacher, there is serious deception going on, and it's very dangerous. It's dangerous for the path as a whole for spiritual teachings because what happens is people really can commit themselves fully and then find out this whole trip is a fake, and that's crushing, and it can turn them off to spiritual practice altogether. So it is very dangerous, and I think we have a responsibility, if we suspect that's going on, to talk about it. I mean, there's a line between gossip, but also, you know, the kind of word of mouth that every business needs to have, good word of mouth. If you've gone to a place, they treated you well, you tell people. If they ripped you off, you tell them that too. So we shouldn't be, uh, we shouldn't be eager to go spread rumors, but if we think something seriously is going wrong in a community, we should speak out. We shouldn't just let it fester and fester, because it can be very damaging. If you are, you, not the teacher, if you are a discerning student, you can even benefit from the worst kind of violation like this. And let me give you an example of probably what is one of the most wrenching things. When a, a teacher sets themselves up as an object of devotion in the classic Hindu sense of a guru, in the bhakti path, they're a stand-in for God, and the practice revolves around taking them as an object for devotion, for worship, doing mantras to them and so forth, and you begin to think of them as some great realized being and so forth, and you have heart openings, a tremendous sense of love and bliss is unleashed in you through this practice, and then you find out that this person has been a fake and whatnot. That can be crushing, but what's not fake is the love and the bliss that you experienced. It's in your heart. It has nothing to do with the teacher. The teacher aroused that, not because of what the teacher really was, but because what you were investing in the teacher, how you were seeing the teacher. You were seeing the teacher as a form of the divine. I should say a particularly transparent form of the divine for you, because everything is ultimately a form of the divine, but a particularly transparent one for you. Now, if you're really discerning, you could take this as a sign to move on in your practice. You could say, okay, maybe I'm done with form here. Maybe I should step beyond form, not get rid of the love and the bliss, but instead of looking to a particular form, seeing that all forms are ephemeral, all forms are impermanent, all forms will pass, what is it that has no form? What is it that is beyond form? So this could be a turning point in your path that could lead you deeper in a very significant way. Whereas if that hadn't happened, you might spend your whole life just worshiping this teacher. You'd always be a devotee with a god. There would always be duality and separation. Ramakrishna, another great Hindu teacher of the 19th century, who, as far as I know, had not a breath of scandal attached to him. And he taught a very devotional path, but he said, ultimately, the devotee has to give that up. As long as you're a devotee worshiping God, there's that duality. So ultimately, that has to be surrendered. That's when you discover the God that transcends all that duality, that transcends that personal relationship. So this teacher, you might have had a deep personal relationship, a spiritually personal relationship, and then it shattered. That could be a good thing. So it comes down to us in all these situations. Take responsibility for your life. You might be fooled by people. You might be deceived. A good actor can fool anybody. Don't worry about all that. But in every situation where you find yourself now, 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 what does this mean for me? How can I make use of it? Don't just wallow in some uh, disappointment trip or feel guilty I should have known or this or that. There's something here to learn. There's some wisdom 
always, always to be gotten out of any situation you find yourself in. But that's your responsibility to find that. The last, very last part of her question, she says, do you think your spiritual development has run ahead of other parts of your personality, and if so, which? And I'll let you be the judge of that. That's not for me to judge. That's for you to judge. So, are there any questions? Yes. So would you put asking for money in that category too? Well, again, it all depends on the context. For instance, every Sunday, whoever's giving the presentation says, you know, Joel does this little labor for love and doesn't ask for any recompense. And that, that is generally true. There was a period while my father was still alive, I inherited a little money. So that's, I don't live off thin air. You know, I'm not that advanced. I, I do. <laughs> but uh, where the center actually, what they, I think they paid me $50 a month so that I'd only have to work part-time and I could be available to teach. That lasted for maybe six months or a year. I'm not sure. And then there was one other case. When I got married, I didn't have a suit to get married in, and I didn't have any money to buy a suit, so I asked my students if they would chip in and buy me a suit, and they did. So I did ask for money, you see, and I needed to get married. Now, frankly, I, Jennifer holds up yours. <laughs> I didn't care whether I had a suit or not, but Jennifer and her mother and her family, <laughs> I showed up like this to get married, cause unnecessary suffering to people, right? <laughs> so what is the context? Good question, but that is what... Yeah, there yeah. are some teachers that can ask for a lot of... There's some teachers that don't have any bottom to their pocket. It just keeps going in and down and down. Well, I would be suspicious. I don't know about you people, but I would certainly be suspicious after a while. Now, again... I believe that when you're ready to make a decision, you should make a firm decision and go with it until factors, you know, determine that you were wrong. And that's fine to be wrong. But I do like to point out that we have to live in this world of relativity. There's another story about a Zen a painter who was known for his great Zen understanding. And he was also known for being extremely stingy, charged really high prices and really gouged people for these paintings. And he was so great, they paid the money these aristocrats and stuff, but they all complained about it. And then after he died, they found out he'd been giving all this money to orphanages. Now, it's interesting. He could have told them that while he was alive. But if he had told them that, it would have gotten him off the hook. And then everybody thought, oh, what a you know, generous, wonderful person he is. So when you realize he was doing that without anybody ever knowing, just out of his own heart, oh, you suddenly have a higher opinion of him. Yeah, I, I think there's pretty widely this uh, unexamined premise that be, being enlightened automatically equates to being a good teacher, and you know that's just uh, unwarranted. That enlightenment does not a good teacher make, and vice versa. Very true, and there's actually a Tibetan teacher who was spontaneously enlightened. Uh, well, he wasn't a teacher; he was a Tibetan uh, with very little practice. And people would come to him for teachings. And he'd say, don't come to me and ask me for teachings because I'm someone who reached the rooftop without taking the stairs. So I have nothing to teach you. And in fact, a teacher like that has to learn to be a teacher. And Ramana Maharshi is another good example. He spent years in silence, not answering questions. Finally, he started teaching because people pulled him out. And then later he talked about hanging out at this temple. He learned the words and the concepts and the ideas and the teachings. But he didn't have any of that. He was a 16-year-old boy who was interested in soccer, for God's sake, you know. So he became a good teacher after he was in life. Mm -hmm. And I find that's true, that I continue to try to 
refine my teaching techniques, you know, learn more, read more, how other people express this and so forth. So they are not uh, equivalent. And there's one other thing about this. A fully enlightened teacher is free of suffering. But that does not mean that they are free of other people's judgment of them in relation to morality or legality. And if any teacher says, well, I should be excused from whatever the moral or legal uh, standards are because I'm enlightened, you don't have to listen to them because whether they are prosecuted and end up in jail or not, it's not going to affect their happiness at all. It makes no difference to them if they're truly free. So it's an argument that does not wash. There might be cases where somebody does stand up against what is legal. I mean, in Nazi Germany, there were things that were legal, that were immoral. Again, you see, all these things have to see it in the context. But that's a very good point. Because someone's enlightened doesn't mean they're a good teacher, and someone is a very good teacher, you may find out, well, they're not really fully enlightened, but they're still a very good teacher. Yeah? I would say that there are also clues to a teacher's realization just by looking at really specifically at their teaching. You know, you can read books by teachers who are supposedly enlightened, and if you use your discrimination, you can see lots of clues that, that, for instance, this particular teacher, he's talking about himself, and you're just seeing this ego running through the whole book, as, you know, the totally deluded type of teacher. And I think people miss that because they want to believe that the teacher is enlightened. And so some of these things are so obvious. You just pull the book out and start reading through it and you go, give me a break. You know, this is, this, this is nuts. This is not true teaching at all. And this is why it's a very good idea to be versed in the classics of mysticism that have survived the test of time, that have come down to us, so we have some idea of what is a true teaching, you know what I mean? So somebody who's teaching mysticism as a way to uh, fame and fortune, that is not classic mysticism. And you can, you know, eliminate that. Whatever they're teaching, that's not what I want. But the opposite is also true. Sometimes you can read a book and the book is great and it really wows you. And then when you're with the teacher, it's important to be observant. Particularly when the teacher's off stage, so to speak. If you can, what are they like just puttering around <coughs> the house? I once knew a teacher, a lot of people regard as enlightened. And he was going to sell a car, and he's talking to one of his students about winding back the odometer. So it would. No. Uh-uh. Now, that's not what he said when he's up on stage, you know what I mean? But, so you would be observant. My teacher, Dr. Wolf, was not somebody who a lot of people, when they first met him, immediately said, Oh, wow, I'm in the presence of an enlightened teacher. He was an old Victorian gentleman. Talk about conditioning. He was raised in the uh, last part of the 19th century. And this is already when I met him, is like in the you know, 80s, and more things have changed a lot, you know, and he still had a lot of the mannerisms and the dress. But, you know, I spent a year and a half with the man. I never, never once, not once, ever heard him say anything or do anything self-serving. I never heard him criticize anybody out of maliciousness or anger or backbiting. He got angry sometimes, but it was always for some other's good. So don't be afraid to form your own judgments. This is the whole point. As long as we're in the play of form here, play. You may be wrong. Maybe you passed a great opportunity. You missed this wonderful teacher. Well, it wasn't right for you. You'll find a teacher right for you.
Yeah. Um, what do you call the conditioning that you still have? It's not. It's not the ego. It's not the conditioned self. What is it? Just, <coughs> Just conditioning. conditioning. I mean, all form is conditioned form. It's conditioned not in an absolutely strict causal way. It's conditioned in the way that quantum mechanics describes the world. Statistically conditioned. Probabilistic. I like to think of it as like a jazz performance, especially the jazz I grew up on. Improvised jazz performance in the heyday of bebop, where the musicians had chord changes they followed, and uh, usually it was a quartet or a quintet, and they played a melody, some, you know, I don't know, da 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 uh, some simple melody, and then each musician gets a chance with his or her instrument to improvise on that. You follow the chord changes, but the musician doesn't know the next note they're going to play. So in one sense, it's completely free. And yet, it's not chaos. When you listen to it, it unfolds as a beautiful, harmonious piece. That's the form? Yes. And everything, this whole cosmos is, in that sense, conditioned. Well, if there are no other comments or questions, why don't we bring the formal part of the morning to a close. You're welcome to just hang around, have some tea, check out the library. Until we see you again, peace to you all.